Bite of Courage is about you and me. It's about ordinary people aspiring to live their best, most authentic life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. Bite of Courage is about hope, about connecting with others, about choosing love over fear and having the courage to be who we're truly meant to be. Bite of Courage is about us. Last summer, we did our first big family vacation. Well, I should clarify, we went to Disney. Now, if you haven't been to Disney as an adult, just imagine you're standing in line at the DMV, and that's it. Actually, it was Orlando in July, so it was kind of like standing in line on the surface of the sun. Why would we do this to ourselves? Remember when you were a kid and you'd go on vacation, you'd be like, why is dad always in a bad mood? <laughs> now I understand. How can I spend an enormous amount of money, be uncomfortable, and listen to my children complain and whine? <laughs> Disney. My guest today is Jim Gaffigan. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jim is not only one of America's funniest and most well-recognized comedians, he's an actor, writer, and an author who's been twice nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Album, Mr. Universe, and Obsessed, and among many of his other accolades, he won an Emmy for Outstanding Morning Program for his contributions to CBS Sunday Morning. The list goes on. But Jim is more than just America's funny guy who can find humor in every situation. He's a devoted husband and dad, a loyal brother and friend, and a dear son whose philanthropic endeavors would make his parents proud. I'm honored to have him on Bite of Courage today as my guest. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, Maureen. <laughs> Maureen. I haven't gone by that name since, I don't know, fifth grade. Thank you, Mo. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Jim, when I was... Of course, I had a few laughs to myself, as I always do um, when I'm alone. Uh, but I was thinking to myself, I probably have the distinct pleasure of being one of the few people who's seen you in a wrestling singlet. Yes. <laughs> I, that was many moons ago. Many moons ago. I, I remember frightening the weigh-ins. People would look at me because I was so pale, and they'd be like, "What is? who is that guy? Who is Except that ghost in a unitard? It's like a Peter Jackson film. Yeah, with your little, well, your little ballet boots. Yeah, and I we ran track together too, did we? Did you I run mean, long I, distance? I stumbled along. I don't know if I'd call it running. <laughs> I think you stumbled into a few hurdles. I I actually did. You do hurdles too? I did low hurdles. Were, yeah. You were quite athletic. I was the first woman inducted into the Hall of Fame into the Athletic Hall of Fame. Wow! That's... Come on, Jim. You mean you didn't know that? I, wait a minute. Were you inducted the same year my brother Joe was? Yes. Yeah. There you go. Our pictures appear yeah. next to each other at the Marsh Gymnasium. And, you know, I remember the – because that's another thing. Because all my life is just feeling guilt. <laughs> so, like, the fact that I couldn't be there for my brother being inducted, I felt incredible guilt. Oh, nice, but. Jim. Nice. Well, I don't know what's worse, Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt. I In my Hollywood days, I had a lot of Jewish friends, still do. And we always used to laugh, like, who, what was worse, Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt? I don't know. 
Do you still live with a lot of guilt? Oh yeah. Constantly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, some of it's logical. Some of it's just kind of profound. Is you that, know, I'm a horrible person. So yeah. Is that, is that what drives you? The guilt? No, I think, um, I think it's managing the guilt is here. I'm going to find different ways to sit. So it, it changes the angle of the shot. I think that, <laughs> well, you look uh, good. Turn a little bit more. Your left side's good. Your left side's good. Yeah. Hi. I like that. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, actually not letting the guilt get in the way is pretty important. How do you do that? You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's the process. I mean, I think I kind of, you know, obligation is something that's different from doing what you want. And so, um, you know, even when I started, it was there was uh, a uh, balancing act of not, you know, like, I guess I should do that. And just kind of, you know, questioning about uh, whether, you know, it's like priorities in life, you know, as a, you know, I think when you become a parent, you kind of realize that a lot of the obligations in life are silly and your kids are the priority anyway. So it's like, I think I came to that conclusion when I discovered what I wanted to do. For sure. Well, you know, it's funny because I was also, I was also thinking, I mean, I remember like in, in my class, the class clown, he was Pat King. He did all the impersonations. Remember Pat? So funny. Oh, so hilarious. Funny. And, and I just saw him at a, something was at Lalamere a few months ago and I saw him for the first time. He's still so funny. He's such a great guy. And I don't know who that person was in your class, but I, I don't know that you would have thought of yourself as being the class clown or were you, do you think you were? Well, I was voted class clown. It's so it, it's, it's, you know, it's, Interesting because there is, you know, even within my family, um, my brother Joe was funny. My brother Mitch was funny. And, um, well, that's kind of the running joke around here. I see yeah. Mitch all the time and Chris now. If you ever yeah. would have told me, I'd be back here with them. And every time I see him at a school function or something, I'm like, hey, it's the funny gaff again. I know you guys always sort of compete for that in an endearing sort of way. You're all funny. Yeah. Yeah. But there is, you know, like the joke in my family is that I'm third funniest. <laughs> but I always, I have, more, I have more hour specials, you know, yeah. but and more grandmas. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's weird because I mean, Pat King, very funny, yeah. right? Like Pat King should be a comedian, but, um, you know, my childhood best friend should be an author, but it's, he's a doctor, you know? So it's, yeah. there's different paths and. I remember, you know, my brother Joe, I remember I bought him a class for um, Second City. And he, um, you know, it's just, you know, I think he was in grad school at the time. He was like, you know, I can't do this. And so it's, you know, it's you make decisions and um, it all ends up working out all right, you know, but... I mean, I think that when I was in my 20s, I because I was kind of pushed to study finance and pushed on this path of wearing a coat and tie that and I just went along with it that by the time I was 24, I was like, forget it. I can't yeah. do that. Did you know back then? I mean, I know you kind of went along with what your parents did and your dad. It was obviously suit and tie banker guy and 
That was also part of our generation too. Everybody was a struggling artist if you were going to do any kind of artistry or creative thing at all. But yeah, so it seemed like you would follow suit the same way Joe did and everybody else. And so was there a defining moment? Did you have sort of that when you were really young or in high school where you were like, I, I want to do something. Maybe you didn't know it was stand-up comedy, but what was that defining moment where it was like, yeah, I'm going to get up on stage and make myself vulnerable to the world. Yeah, I think it's something that I always was drawn to performing and um you know it was a a passion something i was interested in but as you mentioned how i was raised was going into the entertainment field which you did too is not it's not practical it was you know in chesterton one of the things i say the only thing um, in the entertainment, the closest thing to the entertainment industry was the Chesterton Marching Band, which was <laughs> the most successful marching band in America, by the way. Right. Um, uh, uh, you know, but going, there was no one who, whose uncle was a, you know, producer, producer or, you know, there might have been like some moms, some moms that like were in community theater when they were in their 20s. Or there put on the talent you know, show at school. Yeah. there, And, you know, this is going back 30 years ago. There was no Internet. There was no. Um, so I remember the day before I graduated college, I was at uh, a party with all my classmates that I was graduating with. And I that was the first time I think I really confided in this friend of mine, I said, I told her, I said, you know, I think I, I you know, I want to be a, a, an actor and a comedian, but everyone wants to do that. Like, I thought everyone really wanted to be an actor and a comedian, but we were raised to seek security, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, she was like, no, not everyone wants to be a comedian. And I thought she was, well, she's talking out her ass. She's the one person who doesn't want to be <laughs> right. a and so, um, and you'd gotten a finance degree, right? You went from like Purdue, I think yeah. to, did you end up at Georgetown? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, no, I was, you know, people had kind of, you know, my dad and everyone was like study finance, you know, get, uh, the secure job where you're not like, I worked for a in advertising for a while and even working in advertising was considered <gasps> In fact, Jim, I remember, I think it was, um, I was working for Miramax at the time, I think, and I was out in New York for a week or so, and we had dinner together. I remember it had a place that, I think you were living in Little Italy at the time, and I don't know, this place yeah. had some really good onion rings, and I I think it was Gray Advertising. Did you work at Gray Advertising? Uh, well, you know what's amazing is like how little I remember of anything. But yeah, I worked at Gray Advertising as an account person, and then... And you were always I, sleeping I, on the couch there. I feel like the guy had to like yeah. wake you up or something to fire you. Yeah, no, uh, that's how. And then I switched to be a copywriter. And it's interesting because even in the advertising world, I was raised to be an account person. I switched to be a copywriter. And it's just, I think it's, we kind of are told the path that we're supposed to take. Yeah. Which is... um some of it is family culture and stuff like that and seeking out security. And so it, it is weird because now that I'm the, I'm a parent and I think about my kids going into entertainment and it just seems insane. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like a fluke of luck. I mean, I have plenty of friends that are talented 
but you know, it's some of it is there's a lot of things. It's not just talent. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the business aspect to it. It's like creating your own opportunities, which is perseverance. It's it's not even like a matter of intelligence. It's kind of having the foresight to go, all right, I'm going to have to do this or that. Was there a time though, when, or do you remember that defining moment from, I think it was when you were at gray advertising, when you decided, all right, I gotta, I gotta commit to this full time. Was there that for you where you're like, okay, I'm going to give up that security, which you had grown up being told and expected, yeah. expected to rise to that uh, standard where you decided, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to try this once and for all, cause I don't want to live with regret. And then when you obviously did that, you know, I, I think in all the years I spent working and living in Los Angeles and being in entertainment, I mean, I, and I used to go to the comedy clubs all the time, especially when I was working in television sitcom, but I still to this day would be hard pressed to be convinced that there's another profession out there that's harder than stand up. Because I think stand up, you are not only just making social commentary on the world and sort of changing it in your own way through that and talking about things that are t- taboo and trying to do it through the lens of laughter, but you have an impact in that way. And so, was there a time when you're up there on stage and you fall flat? on your face, or you have those hecklers out there, which I'm sure you've encountered more than you'd like to admit. Like, how do you, that's what this podcast is about. How do you find that courage to persevere and just not quit? Well, I mean, I think that we all know that insanity is, you know, repeatedly doing something and expecting a different result, right? And I think that for me doing stand-up comedy, there are, plenty of years when I was doing it and I was expecting a different result and it, it wasn't coming. What was the result so, you expected that wasn't coming? Well, the result, the, I, is, the result I expected is that I was going to work hard and that I was going to be able to perform on the Letterman show and that I was going to be able to make a living. And so what I discovered is, I mean, first of all, I did stand up. I, I, I had always wanted to do it and I was, I did um, an improv class. This is way before UCB and all that. And um, because I had a fear of public speaking, because when I would talk at my job, I would just get all flush and just nervous. You know, I think I just um, I used to have much more social anxiety. I mean, I never I dealt with stage fright for like the first 10 years I did stand up. And um God, and you still went back for more. That's amazing. And so that's that's the insanity, is that it was one of those things where there really wasn't the results. Like if you explain to someone why I was doing it, they'd be like, all right, you you obviously have mental problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was – but it was – there were moments that were incredibly rewarding. It wasn't – and what's unique about stand-up comedy, at least for me, is that it's it's not necessarily the accolades. It's not just even the uh, the crowd, you know, clapping or laughing. It's like coming up with a new material that is so rewarding. And so for me, the um, – you know, there was plenty of times where I just had to – so, you know, I've been doing stand-up for 2,000 years. I don't know, 25 years. Yeah. The first 
seven years, probably my best credit was that this one comedian thought I was funny. That was who is that? My, that was Dave Attell. And, you know, I had done Caroline's Comedy Hour, but was he a uh, wasn't he a writer on was he on SNL? And um... yeah, but he was kind of he was um, the the insomniac or insom. He did a show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really I mean, funny. he's kind of you know, kind of uh, accentuated this, you know, late night degenerate life. But he he's like, comes down to great writing. And so I think that for me, there was this um, conclusion that I, you know, I would say 10 years in there, all my peers were getting appearances on late night shows, whether it be Letterman or Conan. And I was kind of in a standstill. And there was this conclusion that I came to where I was like, all right, I'm going to be the weird uncle that lives in a tiny, filthy apartment and does stand up comedy, but doesn't have really results. Like it was one of those. I mean, it was like I was angry, but I eventually was like, all right, at least I get to do what I want. Yeah. So I was like, all right, other people are going to be married. Other people are going to have kids. Other people are going to make a good living, but I get to do what I enjoy. You know, I still had this drive. And so it was reaching that conclusion that really made me, uh, you know, kind of settle down in a way where I was like, all right, I'm just going to do this. And then when I stopped kind of attempting to control the outcome of you know, managing, that's not to say you can just sit there and I just do stand up. And if people <laughs> come, come, you know, it's not that it's right. But getting caught up in other people's expectations, which I think is frustrating. Yeah. And right. it's uh, so it sounds like maybe one of the defining moments was with Dave uh, Attell when he kind of gave you that endorsement, like, hey, you're you're a funny guy and you just got to keep yeah. at it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I sort of feel like um I think about back in the 90s when I was out in L.A., you know, Sam Kinison was one of those people that he kind of just threw caution to the wind. He kind of had that no holds bar. I mean, Andrew Dice Clay was like that. He wasn't really for me, but I I respected what he did as a comic. But Sam Kinison in particular, I, I remember thinking he just he didn't care. He just egged people down. It's like he wanted to get rid of all the hecklers and egg people on to leave or heckle or do whatever they were going to do to condemn him so that he could then get on with the show. And I felt like to me, when I saw that, it was really liberating to see somebody do that. He really did not care what anybody thought. And I, I feel like at least what I've learned in, as I've gotten older is that I'd like to say I don't care about what people think, but I have cared less as I've gotten older because you 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 evolve and you change and you learn what insanity really means in your life and then you can't fix, manage, and control things. So it sounds like once you sort of surrender that and turned it over, it was kind of like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, it, in a way it's, I mean, this conversation could have been, I mean, I've had, you know, some success, but you know, it's, it's you know, the idea of success, I think gets caught up in other people's expectations and that's where you really, that's where you can really be disappointed. So, you know, other people saying, oh, this is what success is, is, you know, and sometimes you go, all right, this is like, I finally did Letterman. And um, it was great. And, you know, being from Indiana, it held an importance and all this stuff. 
But I remember that night going, oh, well, you know, I spent my whole kind of career, you know, looking for the validation of this appearance. Because at that time, it was such a prestigious show. And that meant, you know, that I was a comedian. It wasn't... You made it in that world. It wasn't like, uh, you know... I'm, you know, it didn't matter if I made money to a lot of people. It was like, all right, he's a real comedian. He was on Letterman. And so, but then I think I realized around that time, it's like I have to create my own goals. And it's weird because I've been doing stand-up so long and I look back and, you know, I have, um, you know, I'm going on tour and I have all these shows that I'm doing. And, you know, I wrote a new hour in like, four months. Whereas I look back over like the 25 years and I'm like, wow, if I had just been writing Mm. every day, I mean, some of it is you learn how to write for your voice. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I could probably do an hour a year if, but then again, there's a lot of factors. So when you go on, you've got a, a, really busy touring schedule. I mean, in fact, we're coming to see you. We'll be at, I think you'll be at the Chicago theater in October. So Andy and I are going to come see you with the Hill and brands and Delgado's will be there. But so I was looking at your touring schedule. It's like, I, I mean, I don't know if you, do you keep that up all year? And then you take like, how do you do that with your family and Jeannie and all that? The kids in school, how old are they now? I have no idea. No, um, they are uh, 12, 11, 7, Five, four. And um, well, some of some of the touring, I think when people hear touring, they think like Rolling Stones going, uh, you know, around the world on a big bus. Yeah. And so and we've done that kind of touring on a bus, but it's it's essentially all constructed around what's best for the family. So. This specific year, it's built on, you know, doing an uh, doing a special within a year. Now, that might change. um, But so like, for instance, Chicago and L.A. and New York. um, But but to answer your question, the 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 time away is constructed where it's like I might be gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, whereas Chicago might be unique in that. I might get to Wednesday, but typically most weekends I'm gone maybe Friday, Saturday. Like if you went to my website, you might be like, this guy's never home. (laughs) But a lot of those tour dates are like Australia, you know, my family's with me or like Paris, my family's with me. Or, you know, if there's a spring break, we'll construct it around where does the family want to go? I'll do shows there, you know? So it's, it's a balancing act, but some of it is, I love it. And it's, you know, like it's, it's our income, but it's also like, I don't play golf. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I don't have like, you know, like dad's, you know, going to Vegas. I don't do that stuff. I have no social life, but like, so some of it is, doing these shows so maybe i'll be gone friday saturday and then i'll be home early sunday morning and um because having done the show when Jeannie and i did the show and doing stand-up i actually have more family time doing stand-up than i do when i was doing the jim gaffigan show 
which is interesting. Yeah, and the Jim Gaffigan show, which I thought was great, and I would assume that with that show in particular than all the other stuff you've been on, you probably had more creative control than in the past. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, the Jim Gaffigan show, what was great about it, but was also the problem about it, was that Jeannie and I wrote all the episodes. Jeannie was the showrunner and directed a lot. And the problem is, is that, as you know, it's, you know, producing a show. And I was in like 90% of the scene. So it was like 5 a.m. to like 9 p.m. Can't do that with kids. No. And it's, you know, yeah, it's a lot like when it was when I was working on that sitcom for several years. It's like it's like live theater. And it's that rapid pace of constant rewriting and new pages and running them down to the set and staging and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you're taking in a whole it's the production beside the aside from the writing and the the constant rewriting. I mean, 90 percent of writing is rewriting anyway. And then you're dealing with staging and different actors and conflicts of schedules and all that kind of stuff oh, in your yeah. crew. It's hundreds of people working on one show and it's like 18 hours a day. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. I, I, I always said to people out there, nobody ever had relationships or really had much of a social life in that world because you were working 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. It's insanity. And it's like television is, you know, if you're going to do it and you're going to capture your point of view, or in my case, me and Jeannie's point of view, it's, it, there is no, uh, there's no break. And you can't do that when you're taking both parents away. I think maybe you can do it with one, but it's, it's television just gobbles up your life. It's yeah. just, and, and I think that people like that. I mean, you know, there even people on the crew that whether they do makeup or they're a grip or something like that, but it's a you might as well be working on an oil rig because it's like there's isolated. You, you, you're isolated essentially. You're yeah. with this. I mean, you're creating something which is rewarding. But you know that was you know Jeannie and I have written books. We've you know we write stand up and we do the TV show and the TV show was very rewarding. But it's like if you've got five young children, it's just it's just selfish to do that. Yeah. How did because uh, I know you've you've. And I think rightfully so. I know you give a lot of credit to Jeannie. I mean, she clearly is a remarkable woman and, and your writing partner, producing partner, mom. How, how did you guys meet and how do you guys work out that? I mean, I understand a little bit now how you do that, but because you're, you're so successful still and you continue to be, and I'm sure you're always looking for that next thing, but how, you also are trying to manage a family and your relationship together. I <clears throat> I know you think I was a mother of 10. I mean, Andy and I only have two kids and I feel I'm now just getting back into having a writing career and getting on my blog and doing this podcast. And it's, it's hard to manage all that. How do you guys manage that and still want to be together? Well, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, I'd say we manage it poorly, but some of it is, uh, it's a juggling thing. And, you know, the relationship that Jeannie and I have, we started off, obviously she, she comes with like a directing background. Like when I met her, she was directing this inner city theater program that she started where kids, you know, eighth grade kids from the inner city were doing Shakespeare. So 
she's all you know, she had a skill set that was part of that world used to the chaos and some people are just drawn to the chaos and so you know but us juggling and uh all of this stuff is i mean we only you know our relationship was when we met it was right when i started doing uh welcome to new york so she was already um an acting coach for me at that point and we were trying to rewrite even though i didn't have the influence so is that where you met her Initially? No, I had met her the summer before. And so, but the collaboration is such a significant part of our relationship. And given the workload, it's, we see, it's like people go, oh, I, you know, I'd kill my spouse or my partner. <laughs> but given our workload, the fact that, uh, it's like it's how we keep in touch. So then I don't have to sit there and explain to her, okay, I'm going to Houston to do a book event. She knows yeah. because, you know, she helped write the book. So she understands that I have to That's part know, of the process. do some of this stuff. And so – and the fact that we write together, it's it's shifting. You know, it's always shifting our opportunities to write. So like every year during the summer, we would typically tour for – 30 days on a tour bus or we and sometimes we do it in the summer and we'd also do it during spring break and so we would bring a babysitter and it was pretty hectic so we would have um you know we would arrive in a city would drive overnight we'd get the kids off we'd get them in you know the hotel pool she'd take them to a zoo in omaha and then <laughs> i would nap, and then i'd go and do a show and she would meet me at the show and then afterwards we would have a, an informal writing session surrounding jokes, and then we would get on the bus and we'd drive to another city, which is insane. Yeah. But that was how we kept the family together and kept the writing partnership. And it's some of it is her. she has a similar work ethic. I mean, she has, you know, 15 times more energy than me. You know, there's, um, you know, like she can go on like, five hours sleep. Whereas like, I need like 12, you know, <laughs> and then 12 so on top of that. Yeah. And so it's just, uh, it's more of, uh, you know, her resilience. Now she's writing a book and it's, but it's weird. It's, you know, you know, it's essentially the freelance business. So if you want to be working in a year, you kind of have to start now. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that sometimes too, especially with the kids getting to the age where Danny's 14 going on 40, Mark's 12 going on 13. Danny's a mini me, which is all kinds of troubles for me because, you know, I yeah. lock, lock horns with him and Mark is a little mini Andy. But they only need me when they need me. I mean, you've got younger kids. At least you you feel needed on that on that level. But now it's sort of like things are constantly changing and evolving. And it's like, how do you sort of find that balance is really difficult. Have any of your kids gotten the, uh, gotten the bug to want to perform? Well, we, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, our oldest is 12 and I mean, yeah, I think so, but I don't know if it's, just part of a personality because as you know sometimes kids are really outgoing at a certain point and then they kind of become reserved yeah and um you know uh 
And then our 11 year old is really funny. And then, uh, you know, but our 12 year olds, you know, very gifted kind of musically, but I think it's so early. I don't know. And like, when you talk about mini me, like our youngest kid looks exactly like me, poor guy. (laughs) And so it's, it's, um, it's too early to tell, you know, um, and at this point, we're just trying to, you know, like any parent, you know, support what they're interested in. Yeah. Same uh, here. How do you, um, as far as the, I mean, we run into our conflicts with kids, but that's what, what all parents do, I think. But with, I don't know, just that whole, I think we've lived long enough now that we've seen st- stuff in our lives where it's like everybody has pain and suffering. We go through struggles and we all have our version of that. Have, have there ever been times where you just... Maybe more so before kids, but uh, or maybe even after kids, where things just get really tough. How do you? We all suffer from tragedy and loss and love and heartache and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's periods of of time that I've gone through where some dark times where it's like, how do you, how do you, Jim? How does Jim Gaffigan get through that stuff? What are some of the coping mechanisms? You know, where do you find the courage to to get up every day and keep doing it? Because especially in that world, I know firsthand how how lonely it can be and how everybody. It sounds so glamorous. Everybody thinks yeah. you hear Hollywood and touring and all that kind of stuff. And it's it can be a really lonely life, even though you've got your family on the road, because you're constantly having to be up and on and performing and that like, what do you do to relax? And how do you find the courage to to just keep moving through the tragedy and the heartache sometimes? Well, I always I think like, you know, the entertainment industry is very much I describe it as someone going, come here, come here, come here. And then they slap you, come here, come here, slap you. And so not you know it's not um but i'm constantly relearning it you know what i mean i'm relearning that um that you know the relationships in the entertainment industry are not necessarily real you know but then again that's in any industry really mm-hmm. you know it's i uh you know but i i don't know i mean some of it is you know uh i mean i never thought that i would be like there's times along my path in this journey where, I mean, the train could have completely gone off the tracks, you know, very many times. But um, I think some of it is just getting up and going, you know, and, you know, not licking your wounds for too long. Right. And so um, but I don't know. There's a lot of humiliation. I mean, life is filled with humiliation and I think stand-up comedy is um, has been a big lesson for me. It's uh, you know, it's it's also it's it's a kinder world stand-up comedy than it was when I started. It was like when I started doing stand-up in New York City, I was you know, even the demographic of comedians has shifted. Like when I started, I was this college educated guy who, uh, was white bread, who was, you know, and in New York city, you know, you talk about Sam Kennison, you're, you're mentioning Sam Kennison and Andrew Dice Clay. It's like, they're completely different from me. And so in New York city at that time, it was what ethnicity are you? You know, which seems like an ancient form of a joke, but it was really a reference point 
back then. And it was like, you know, I'm Irish Catholic, but it was like, because I'm so pale and white bread, it was my (laughs) ethnic was that I was white bread. And so that informed my demographic. And New York City stand up was much more combative. But what stand up is now is, you know, it's and some of it's because of UCB and uh, it's now stand up comedy. Most stand up comedians are went to a better school than I went to and are more of a, you know, it's, it's, it's more, more of an upper middle class, the children of upper middle class. Whereas when I started, it wasn't, it was much more of an everyman kind of thing, which is, I mean, I pride myself on, you know, I want someone, I want my audience to have different economic backgrounds. Whereas now I think it's, Stand-up comedy is much more fragmented where there's, you know, the people that just perform and appeal to people that went to Little Ivies. You know what I mean? And and maybe this is just on the north in the northeast here. But like then there's the uh, comedians that just perform for like the Teamsters. You know, it's it's become kind of fragmented. But like it used to be there used to be a lot less college educated, I feel like comedians when I started now it's like I feel like most of them are yeah yeah well and it also gets me thinking too I mean you've been called the the clean I think actually the New York Times or somebody had said at one point said you were considered the cleanest comic out there right I don't know if you ever tried to drop the f-bombs or use profanity in your I I always attributed that to you from kind of your upbringing, I guess, because I knew yeah. your parents and the the Catholic guilt. And yeah. I, I, and I equated a little bit to when I'm writing, you know, my kids read my blog or, or not all the time, but they, they have access to it and they do read it occasionally. And I've, I care about words matter to me. So I do care yeah. in that sense about having some manners and some decorum about what I'm saying. And I think there's a way to, there's a clean way to do things. But when you're talking about just comics and and education and demographics fit. You strike me as, again, because I know your background, I could guess as to where you lean politically or religiously. I know you have a very strong Catholic faith. and But I think most people think that you agree with them when you're talking to them. Do you make a point to try to stay neutral like that? Because I think it's hard to try to carry that balance or have that neutrality and still be funny. It's a, it's, it's a lot to think about when you're trying to deliver the lines. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that, you know, stand-up comedy is very much a point of view and um, my material, you know, is one where it's about, it's a, it's a commentary on the human condition as opposed to like, um, a specific point of view. I mean, we live in a very divided country. I mean, even though like with Trump, it's like, it's so divisive. It's, it might be something where you can't really even avoid it. Like I have a joke that I've been doing recently where I was like, I didn't vote for Trump, but I walked around New York city the, the week after the election and people looked at me like, you did it. You <laughs> And because I look like a Republican senator from the 50s. And and I, I'd be like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But then after a couple of days, I was like, did I do it? 
Yeah. You know, and so <laughs> some of it is like the Trump phenomena is 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 obviously unique, but the there is also this break from this conflict of what's happening to our world where people do want to have a break to it. The other aspect is that um, I've always loved the fact that like there's been a lesbian couple in the audience sitting next to a Mormon family because it's, it really comes down to, is it funny or not? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not running for Senator. I'm, you know, I mean, it is point of view driven, but um, and I think you're right, you know, because I've been asked about this forever. You know, I mean, I am Catholic, but I spend most of my adult life as a lapsed Catholic, like where I was closer to agnostic than Catholic. And so then um, but I think that there's, you know, the some of it is the, I mean, I curse like you. I'm sure you curse in everyday life. But like, you know, if you met someone at a cocktail party, you wouldn't be like, hey, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? You know what I mean? You just it right. just would. It, and, and some of it with stand up comedy is. You have to be authentic. Yeah. So if you're not authentic, um, you know, you're not doing your job. And so, again, you know, I curse in everyday life. But if I'm talking, you know, and also as a creative person, like I remember when I first moved to New York. I mean, I know that everyone has this this kind of naive belief that like Indiana, like we're riding around on tractors. And <laughs> totally. Like, you know what oh, I mean? They're, God. Like, they're like, Oh my gosh, you know? And, and the, the, the reality is, is that the Midwestern sensibility, it's like, yeah, there are some people that are like cursing is bad, but like 99% of Midwesterners are like, yeah, you curse when you stub your toe. Right. Whereas in the Northeast, you curse just to kind of flower the language a little bit. <laughs> so when I moved to New York, people were like, holy fucking shit, I took a shit. And I, you know, and you're like, what? And this was in an advertising agency. And I was like, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be a little more sophisticated? Yeah. And, and I think it might be, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, and I bring it up just to, it's a cultural dynamic that I think is, is just different. You know, it's, um, if someone curses a lot, where, where we're from in a casual setting, it would indicate that they're upset, like that there's something underneath it. And, you know, if, if some of it is the subject matter that I'm discussing, if I'm talking about, you know, hamburgers, is it really necessary to curse, you know? Right. And and then on another side, it's like, if it's Chris Rock, then he should curse. If it's Lewis Black, he should curse. But like, for me, you know, it's like, I'm a slow talking Midwesterner. It's just, it just seems unnecessary. Yeah. And it almost would seem unnatural. Yeah. And I guess, too, because you've established your style, because you, you've established your own voice, too. Jim, we're going to get into a real quick uh, rapid-fire couple questions here. And whenever you're ready, you ready? I'm ready. All right. What? Now, you, 
Yeah. Are you landing planes with the headset or you're also just, <laughs> I, are you, no, doing that? you know what, as a mom, I wear this all the time and I carry my phone around in my pocket because as, as I'm sure, you know, I'm like an air traffic controller. I, that's yeah. what you do. The older you also, are those the same headphones? And yeah. when you utilize I, I a helicopter? I stole them off the airplane the midway the last time I flew yeah. in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not like the guy that. Rick House, what he call the uh, Cubs games? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Carry, right? I was going to say. Well, the Jack Brickhouse was before. Oh, yeah, that's Harry. right. Hey, by the way, are you a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan? I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel as though um, it's interesting because I feel like when the Cubs were going to the World Series, there was, uh, you know, an opportunity for me to go to a game. And I was like, you know what? It would be wrong. Like, it should be someone who's a real Cubs fan. Because as a kid, I was a huge Cubs fan. And by the way, you, Maureen, you have to see Maureen. Mo, you have to see the last episode of last season. Did you see the Mike Gaffigan episode? Yes. Oh, my God. That was awesome. Right? Oh, with Mitch. Uh, yeah, that was – no, well, there was the Mitch episode where Andy Richter played Mitch, which was he, – he was Mitch, a combination of Mitch and Joe, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, saw that one. But you have to see the Mike Gaffigan episode. It's on iTunes because I play my dad and, and there's all these – and my, my son plays me. And then there's uh, – but there's some references. The reason this came up is there's – when I was a, you know, when I was a kid, I would listen to White Sox games at night and Cubs games. I'd watch Cubs games during the day, right? And so, anyway, um, but there's references you have to see the Jim Gaffigan show. It's on iTunes. The episode's called the Mike Gaffigan show, but you have to watch it. All right. And then, um, but so like the Cubs and the White Sox thing, it's like I haven't lived in Northwest Indiana for twenty, you know, thirty years, so I feel as though. It's, you know, it, some of it is like how much I loved baseball as a kid. I don't follow it now. So it's yeah. like, I'm not, you know, I don't know. It's you like know I mean? you just enjoy a good game. And it's like the experience, especially when you go to Wrigley. It's just about being outdoors and just the America's favorite pastime and all that kind it's of stuff. For a pitch of a White Sox game, though. Yeah. Hey, that'd be fun. That should be on your list of things to do. The first pitch at one of the one of the ballparks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think does Connie Devers work yes. for the Cubs? We got to make that happen. Yeah, there you go. All right. Now that we put it out in the the universe, it'll. Con I'm going to get yeah. in touch with Connie. She was my class, so maybe there she, you go. She's. I'm going to set that up for you, Jim. There you go. I'll have my guy call your guy. There you go. All right. All right. Rapid fire round. You ready? Yeah. I got my yes. little my little cards here. All right. What is your favorite sound? <laughs> um, the microwave. I don't know. Your favorite smell. Bacon. Oh, your favorite joke. Do you have a favorite joke? Uh, the newest joke I've come up with, but oh, the newest line. So it'd be hard to even provide it. Your favorite kid. Oh, I don't know how that got in there. That shit. Yeah, I no, I don't really have a favorite. Okay, I thought I might stump you there. Have you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, do your kids ever? Did they ever get embarrassed by you or like, Dad? Come on, don't say that. Um. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, but I see it as an opportunity. You know, it's like they, you know, kids embarrass parents all the time. 
until they're like 10 and then parents give revenge after that. Yeah. That's how it works. Jim, I yeah. always tell my kids when they're screaming and crying or whatever about something complaining, I'm like, you know what? I make them keep a journal every day. I'm like, go write it in your journal, date it, sign it. I'll sign it, you know, cause you're all going to be in therapy. It's just really a question of minimizing that time at this point. So write about it in your journal. I'll sign it. And then someday if I'm not I around. I make my kids journal when we go on trips, I make them journal. That's great. Yeah. Keep that stuff. Someday they'll make a lot of money from it. By the way, you think you and Jeannie will have some more kids or you all done with that? You know, we're not opposed if another one comes along, you know? Wow. And what's your youngest? Seven? Four. Four. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you got, you, no, got you have the gamut. Yeah. If you didn't do stand up, what would you want to do? Um, I mean, I suppose acting or uh, writing or. I don't know. I, you know, sometimes I look at chefs and I'm like, maybe I would like that. I don't know. That's funny. That's one of my questions. Aside from hot pockets or bacon, what's your favorite food? Oh, um, well, I think a really, a really good cheeseburger is important. And I know this sounds, uh, but I think Chicago deep dish the sausage, um, and and it's you know I did a favor for Mitch, my brother Mitch, and he was like, I want to send you some Lou Malnati's, and I'm like, I can't because I just get fatter and fatter. <laughs> That's the and best. <laughs> I can't have those in my house because yeah. I'll I'll eat them, and they're like a billion calories in. And but they're the I best. The but I make like so election night. I you know I got together with Joe, Mike, and Mitch, and um. And we went to Lou Malnati. Like they're just kind of like you could take us anywhere, and they're taking us for pizza because I'm I, I really do love deep dish that much. And it's you know after the first piece, you're not really hungry, but I just keep going. Yeah, you know? it just so tastes so great. I can, I never they, get sick of Lou Malnati's. Eating of pizza than about the election problem. And you and I, I, I don't know about you, but I enjoy their the chocolate chip deep dish cookie, the hot thing that you have to that you get at Lou Malnati's after the pizza. Do you ever get that? I'm too I'm too busy eating the pizza. <laughs> That's I awesome. Just, you know, I just it's that good, and I don't know if it's nostalgia of like when we were teenagers and we'd take the South Shore yeah. in there, but it's the best thing ever. And it's, do you do you guys ever cook? Do you like to cook personally? I don't like to cook. I'm, Does Jeannie? Um, she she enjoys it, but some of it is timing. So some of it yeah. is, you know, it's you know we have our round, uh, uh, you know what we're. Feeding kids, uh, you know, she doesn't like when I say feeding them. But, it's like the zoo um, animals. I, yeah, you know, it's like, should we feed them? She's like, could you not say that? <laughs> you got to feed them. Yeah, feed the cattle. How about a yeah. least favorite food? Do you have a least favorite food? Um, I, you know, I guess, I guess I wish I liked fish, but fish is really low on the. You're not a seafood guy. No, not a seafood guy. And and the more I wrote about it, the uh the more repulsed I was. So I, you know, I used to eat crab and I used to eat shrimp and now I'm I can maybe do a shrimp cocktail every now and then, but It's I funny cuz it, the first time I ever had oysters, your your dad uh, got me oysters on the half shell. We were in Chicago at a restaurant and he got them and I could not slurp those things down fast enough. Oh, you loved it. Oh, well, any kind of seafood. I can't get enough of it. 
One time he oh took me to a restaurant. Joe was there too. And I think it was in Hammond I or something. Oh, what are you going out to dinner with my dad? Well, you know, I used to, I, I came back from college. This was hysterical, but I mean, your parents yeah. were like surrogate parents to me. I don't know if you ever knew that, but they were big influences for me and saved my life in so many ways. But yeah, I used to get on the train in Michigan City. My mom would talk to your mom and be like, Mo's coming in. She's getting off at Dune Acres. Your mom would pick me up. So I would go to just go hang out at your house because it was a respite yeah. for me. But yeah, so a couple of times, like your dad would take me out to dinner. I'd come visit him. He'd pick me up at the Dune Acres train station. be like, Mo, come in. There's a pack of cigarettes in the freezer. We're going to have a pot of coffee. And we'd just yeah. sit and we'd chat. Call me Mike. You got to call me Mike. And we're going to go in the library and watch the video of Mike's graduation. We'll see... Jim and Joe standing yeah. there in the background with their tweed jackets on. You know, it was the cutest thing yeah, ever. You but got, you got you got to watch the Mike episode, Mike Gaffigan oh episode, directed by by the way. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, he uh, he took us out for frog legs one time, and I just you oh, know, yeah, frog legs. yeah, I I couldn't do I can't do the frog legs, but oysters and the half. Uh, what do you like to do for fun? I know you probably don't have a lot of downtime with kids and work and all, but I. You know, I would say it's, uh, you know, it's some kid related thing, you know, it's just enjoying the family to the park is fun. You know, it's weird. You know, it's hard. If you don't have kids, it sounds like horrible, but it's just, you know, I mean, even taking the kids to get ice cream is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you learn to appreciate the important things in life, especially when you're busy and getting caught up in the work stuff all the time. What scares you? Hmm, what scares me? Um, what scares me is the that I would look back in five, ten, fifteen years and think that my priorities were wrong. That's mm-hmm. that's something that scares me. Um, that um, you know that I didn't spend enough time with my kids. That I wasn't present enough. That I was you know, uh, checking email or doing, uh, conference calls when I should have been there listening or something. You know what I mean? Yep. That's great. What inspires you? Uh, I think a lot of things inspire me. I mean, I think, uh, you know, my wife inspires me. I think, uh, you know, there's something now it's at the point where it's, what inspires me is creative fulfillment, like mm-hmm. getting those moments when I'm on stage and I'll come up with a line. It's like that'll drive me for another week or um, even doing a CBS Sunday commentary. Like it's just little things. It's the sum of them yeah. that are exciting, you know. That's great, Jim. Three things you love to do to relax. Well, I, I think there's nothing better than napping in the world. <laughs> It's true. Um, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm one of these people that's so low energy that I don't need to relax. I need to, um, you know, get my energy up, you know, whether it be coffee or Get the endorphins kicked in. Yeah. I mean, it's – I do feel like when I work out, I'm more mentally – put together, you know, so I think that when I, you know, but it's, you know, I mean, I love the fact that my life is never the same day, two days in a row, but, um, having some like being in town, you know, working on stand up, 
you know, in an ideal world, it would be, there was one day when I did, um, I worked on a movie in the morning and then I worked on a different movie in the afternoon and then I flew to Boston and I did two shows. Like if I could do that and if I could have eaten dinner with my kids and then put them to bed, that would have been perfect. That's what I love about this business too. It's like it's there's no same day every day, you know, that nine to five kind of thing. Favorite quality in a friend? Um, I would say, uh, you know, independence and, um, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's support, but I love my friends that have different opinions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the fact that. I have friends that are Occupy Wall Street and I have friends that are uh, libertarians and I have friends that are atheists and I have friends that are devout Jewish or Catholic. It's I just think that, you know, life is richer when there's different points of view and uh, the perspective on things and also forgiveness, because sometimes I'll say stuff that are, is pretty stupid <laughs> or, but that's how I learn. You know what I mean? Which like, le- oh, yeah. There. Which leads me to the next question: favorite quality in yourself? <sighs> um, <laughs> it's hard to say nice things about yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. You know, I think I try hard. You know, uh, I think you have a g- great capacity for forgiveness too. The same thing you probably appreciate in your friends. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And and I think it's also and I, I I feel like I try to do this in my writing and I think you do it in your comedy Jim is it's what you were just saying about your friends it's it's this inclusiveness it's this diversity and it's like we're more similar than we are dim- dissimilar. So it's yeah. like I I want to hear other people's opinions. I want to hear what Fox News is saying and I want to hear what CNN is saying. I want to know what's going on yeah. and it's as a writer anyway, it's not my place to judge, it's my place to observe. I oh. gotta go. All right. I love you. I love you too, Jim. Thank you so much for being here today. If you had to share with your listeners one last takeaway today, what would it be about not giving up and having courage? I would say, you know, you define your own level of success. You don't have to tell anyone what it is. Um, because I'm also superstitious and I feel like the devil's always watching. But, um, and I'm jokingly saying that, but some of it is is that you have to, uh, you know, do your own thing and, you know, getting caught up in other people's idea of success is never a good idea. Yeah. So whether it be money or, you know, popularity or whatever, that's never the answer because it's like that's theirs. Awesome. Thanks for being here today, Jim. And I'll, uh, we'll see you in a couple months. Good luck on the road and give my best to Jeannie and the family. You got it. All right, Jimbo. Bye. Thanks everyone for tuning into my podcast, Bite of Courage. To learn more about my guests, you can go to biteofcourage.com or go to my website, humormewithmo.com, where I also post weekly articles about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be daring, be brave, and take a bite of courage. This is a trio production, all rights reserved.